0: Coming to you from ACOG's annual scientific meeting in San Francisco, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz for ReachMD. I'm joined today by Dr. Jean Conry. She's past president of ACOG. She's the 64th president of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and assistant physician-in-chief at the Permanente Medical Group in Roseville, California, and associate clinical professor of OBGYN at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Conry, great to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much. Delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. Obviously, in the last year, it's been quite the year for you. Uh, Take me through, before we get into some of the initiatives that you were um, instrumental in in helping to pioneer, take me through just what the experience was like. You came in for the past year. Obviously, it was probably a whirlwind of a year. What was it like?
1: The most incredible experience of my life, the opportunity to represent our fellowship nationally, And internationally is one of the most exciting opportunities. It started immediately after the um, convocation in New Orleans. We were on a flight actually heading home and I got my first text message saying can you be in Washington DC for a White House briefing the next day and we literally diverted our um, plans to Washington DC the day after the convocation and the wild ride didn't stop until the end of the that year,
0: it almost sounds like they needed to create an Air Force One for you <laughs> based oh, that on the been demand. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So within the last year, you helped push forward um, some new initiatives. Uh, tell me about the first. It's uh, the impact of the environment on health. I know that was a big one. I was there uh, at your speech last year as you were just coming in, and you really sort sort of emphasized the idea of environment on health. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Thank you. Um, it is an area that we don't pay enough attention to. I think um, as clinicians, we look for research. We look for that double-blinded, case-controlled study to help us, guide us in our medical judgments. And it's very exciting right now. We are looking at TOSCA reform, the Toxic Substance Chemical Act, looking at that reform for the first time in the history of ACOG. We've taken a political stance on that, and we are trying to get... um, bicameral bilateral agreement and build a coalition that says, let's look at the impact of the environment on our health. And then I'm very um, proud to say that ACOG has led the efforts to present a a global initiative to our colleagues in FIGO, the International Federation of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, on reproductive health and the environment. So ACOG has led those efforts. We are now hosting a symposium at Figo. We have a keynote address at Figo. And we actually have a pre-conference day on the impact of the environment on our health. Do you think,
0: from your perspective, has this come at a... At the right time? Is it years late? Is it better late than never scenario? What do you think?
1: Um, I use the analogy of the ostrich, that we kind of put our head in the sand until we have all the answers. And what I'm telling people is, no, we need to get our head out of the sand. We need to look at it. It's never too late. Um, We're very, very cautious in how we approach things. ACOG, when we take a stand on something, it truly means that we've done the research we have looked at this so I think the timing is actually very very good for all of us
0: Hmm. and there are of course um, entities that have strong interests against uh, moving forward with some of these environmental initiatives do you see that as being a major roadblock towards the successful journey that you're trying to create with this initiative
1: no I think it's it's inevitable It's a reflection of how difficult the research is and why some of the reform is so important. Because right now, the burden of proof is on the weight of our shoulders and the weight of um, our patients. There is no way to do research after a chemical has been released into the environment. So we can never have a double-blinded, case-controlled study, and yet that's what we look at as physicians. That's our gold standard, and we're being put in a position that the chemicals are already there in the environment. Now we're playing catch-up. So instead we're saying, as OBGYNs, please, we want the studies to be done before we are looking at the impact on a fetus, on a mom.
0: And do you think this initiative will help propel more studies right now? Is there... uh an associated campaign to get more funding towards studies that can really investigate this?
1: Very clearly. I have the good fortune to sit on the National Institute for Environmental Health Science as an OBGYN. Um, I'm seeing all of the types of research proposals that are coming through, so it's fascinating to see the DNA studies that are being proposed um, and then taking to the other Level, you know, what's the impact on maternal health? So, a whole array of studies are being proposed and being funded right now.
0: Fantastic. It's exciting. Well, why don't we turn then to another initiative of yours? You've been very strong advocate towards advancing awareness, understandings of maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States and globally. Tell me a little bit about that initiative.
1: I was delighted to be able to introduce the National Maternal Health Initiative at my presidential address um, two years ago in New Orleans. Um, that work is truly a collaborative effort amongst um wonderful organizations the society for maternal fetal medicine our colleagues in, in um, nurse midwives and nurse practitioners and obstetric nurses the center for disease control everybody getting together saying there are huge issues out there how can we step forward and acog said we can take the lead in a couple areas and our lead is in looking at maternal morbidity and mortality how we change practices and what are our priorities there hmm.
0: and a number of people I've spoken to on this subject in particular said this is an overly unrecognized issue it is pervasive it's still there it's often ignored yeah. um, What are your thoughts on that
1: is so too it was dr. David Grimes who gave a, a lecture at aCOG just a couple years ago who put it in perspective he said this is a jumbo jet full of women crashing every day it doesn't make those headlines why and um, what i've said here in the united states is that it took an alignment that is a powerful alignment for the first time in the history of maternal child health we have an obstetrician who's at the lead We've got an obstetrician who's saying, yes, we care greatly about children, but it's maternal child health. If we don't put an emphasis on maternal health, we're never going to achieve our goals. So having that focus on maternal health um, is really been key, and having a, a leadership um, with Dr. Michael Liu, Dr. Hania Trush in their positions is an alignment, and having ACOG say, we're there, we're going to step forward and be a part of this initiative, we will lead this initiative, it has been a very exciting time.
0: So to date, there has not been an obstetrician in, in a leading role for this this issue? Because that seems counterintuitive not N- to have that.
1: We've had a number of ACOG leaders, a number of OBGYN leaders, but put in place in a government agency. Um, we've had our academicians, but now we've got somebody in the government agency saying this is critical. It took Dr. Liu being put in that position. Hmm. So exciting opportunity.
0: Yeah, very exciting. What What do you think is next down the road for that particular initiative?
1: Um, I think we we call it three bundles in three years. We actually have more than three bundles. We actually have six. But We're trying to have everybody realize that if we can address uh, postpartum hemorrhage, thromboembolism, and hypertension right now, and have every single birthing location, and I don't say hospital, birthing location, the entire United States, realize that we have to be able to address those three major problems, we will change the outcomes across the United States. And once we've got the systems in place in every birthing location, then we can add the next... Um, guidelines and and make changes.
0: And you say the systems, I mean is this does this come down to approved checklists that everybody universally adopts? Is this uh, an education gap or is it all the above?
1: It's all of the above. I look at my own hospital, we adopted California maternal quality care collaborative guidelines several years ago. We put in place training where our um, EDS workers, the, the people who are cleaning the the hospital, the nurses, the ward clerks, the physicians, everyone is trained. And we have simulation training. We have a number of different things. And we have that open, non-hierarchical approach where a nurse can be standing there with me and say, um, Dr. Connery, don't you think we need the massive transfusion protocol? And I should say gratefully, yes, this is a perfect time for it. You you take away some of the hierarchies. You all work as a team. We will improve maternal health outcomes. Mm.
0: You know, not to play into any stereotypes, but it does sound remarkably Californian in sentiment. (laughs) Do you think that that will be adopted by other parts of the country, such as the East Coast, which has perhaps a more hierarchical system?
1: Quite the opposite. (laughs) Our greatest collaborators in all of this right now are in New York. So New York um, has, we're trying not to recreate the wheels. So they've already um, done something, uh, great work along thromboembolism and have given that to us. We're doing the postpartum hemorrhage. So I think everybody is, is saying the same thing, that this is the way we've got to approach it. That's great. It's a very exciting time.
0: And what about within the education gap sphere? Do you think um, between thromboembolism, uh, postpartum hemorrhage, uh, preeclampsia, do any of those particular areas... Um, stand out above others as far as where the gaps are. Is there is there any particular sector in which people you think in clinical practice really just don't know enough and don't have as good a checklist as they should?
1: Well, I think hypertension was one, and then we came out with Dr. Martin's wonderful work along that line and so now it's implementing that so the education gap is more we've got the information out there now we've got to create the implementation we cannot wait until somebody's blood pressure is sitting there at 160 over 110 so addressing that early and really following the guidelines is critical dr mary dalton pointed out just a couple days ago that quite honestly if we adopt some of the recommendations that they've put forth on venous thromboembolism they're pretty straightforward. She considers that an easy one. So it's getting over clinician fear because as soon as you say that you're going to be addressing thromboembolism, somebody's immediate fear is, oh my God, I'm going to have somebody hemorrhage. So I think it's the follow up on education and having everybody see, yes, we've implemented it successfully. We haven't seen our hemorrhage rates increase and this is how successful we've been is really where we need to go. I think the knowledge gap for all of us will be on some of the other ones or knowledge and implementation, sepsis. We have a great deal that we can learn from our emergency room colleagues on lactic acid and sepsis. Maybe we need to be working very closely with the EDs and seeing how they've implemented incredibly successful sepsis protocols and reduce uh, morbidity and mortality from sepsis um, with hospital admissions. So, we need to be collaborating with our colleagues outside of OBGYN. Um, the second thing we need to do, this one I think is the, the most difficult, we put one of our bundles as obesity. How do we do that? You know, we're looking at the obesity in the United States. How is it we make that an effective bundle? Is it that we as OBGYNs need to really start talking with women about their weight gain in pregnancy which we've been a little bit reticent to do so those are some of the challenges i see
0: and why the reticence because i get that yeah. it, there's reticence across a number of uh, specialties regarding this issue but the issue isn't going away right in fact it's only becoming more prevalent but why do you think just uh, from the singular practice up to the organizational level there is that level of reticence.
1: You know, ACOG came out with great guidelines just a couple of years ago. I had the chance to speak to the Institute of Medicine about them. So our guidelines now are very, very important. I think sometimes physicians worry that they're going to offend a woman about her weight gain. So I think we need to educate on how to approach it. Um, I approach it with every single woman, um, pregnant or non-pregnant, what I believe is their um, ideal body weight. And I actually start the conversation by asking a woman how she feels about her weight or what she thinks is ideal. They know. They all know. So with taking it in that fashion and then setting some expectations for pregnancy and being very clear at a very first prenatal visit what your expectations are, Following up with a postpartum visit so that we make sure at the postpartum visit we set some expectations within six months what their weight loss should be. I think those are some critical steps. But I think sometimes we worry too much about offending a patient and their sensitivity about weight. And we need to own it in the sense that if you look at most women in their reproductive years, that's when we see that um, very significant weight gain related to pregnancy and lack of postpartum weight loss. We own those years, so we need to be the ones really taking a very proactive step with our patients, helping them set some goals and giving them some of the education, um, the alignment with all the resources in the community, and just some of the successes that we can.
0: Well put. Well, we have one more initiative to come through. I I definitely don't want to miss this one. It involves women in the workforce, women in leadership, um, increasing the diversity, both at uh, ACOG and perhaps Universal. Um, in medicine. What can you tell me about that initiative?
1: You know, you you said it most eloquently, it's diversity. We have a very diverse patient population. We've got um, a very diverse OBGYN gyn um, practice out there. And we've got a lot of diversity in the fellows, the junior fellows and our young physicians. It's time for our leadership to reflect that diversity. So I think everything that we can do to encourage um, the diversity in our leadership is absolutely critical. I actually call it the pulling up in leadership. Too often we wait for somebody to step up and You don't see women stepping up quite as often. Um, It's just whether it's culture, whether it's our training, whether it's our approach. So helping women be pulled into leadership where somebody reaches out and says, I think you're doing a fabulous job. Let me encourage you to to step up here. I think that's what we need to be doing as leaders, identifying um, all that potential that's out there and really encouraging them and pulling them upwards is is very critical.
0: Well, Dr. Connery, I don't think there's been... Any question of your own pulling up and stepping up to the plate here, <laughs> to use you. that analogy. I very much want to thank you for your time. I've been speaking with Dr. Jean Conry. She's the 64th president of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We've been talking about all the initiatives that she's helped pioneer and the legacy that she leaves for future presidents and future members of ACOG. Again, Dr. Conry, thanks so much for your time.
1: Dr. Bernholtz, thank you so much for allowing me this wonderful opportunity.
0: If you've missed any part of this episode, or if you want to check out other episodes on ReachMD, visit ReachMD.com, and thanks as always
1: for listening.